Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week we're chatting with Peter Toma, who's a buyer's agent and director at Elite One Property. What makes Peter interesting is he has an engineering background, so we have a chat to him about how the engineering side of his brain helps him to go about his due diligence when he's investing in property. We ask him about how he's grown his portfolio and we cover off some key fundamentals such as commute times and how they influence property prices and how infrastructure plays into that as well. We also talk in detail about the process of building a portfolio and consolidating and reducing debt at the back end as well. It's a great interview which I'm sure you'll enjoy and here's Peter. Peter Toma, thank you for joining me on Geared for Growth. Thanks Mike, pleasure to be here. Kick us off Peter if you will with who you are and what you specialise in. Yeah, so we're um, a property advisory and buyer's agency business. The company is called Elite One, and our mission is to create wealth through property, create a better life through property. That's what we, um, that's our mission, and that's what we strive to do for everybody that gets involved with us. Um, and it's something that we really have a big passion for and um, really love to help people achieve their financial goals through property. Well, on the strength of that, you're a perfect fit for this podcast. I think we have similar mission statements. I haven't written one down, but probably <laughs> I'll probably just plagiarise yours because that works. What about um, growing up, Peter? What what were the posters on the bedroom wall? For me, it was API magazine, not necessarily on the walls, but um, definitely a, a huge stack of API uh, magazines uh, in the bedroom, um, photos and and i guess if you call them posters but photos always on my phone or um snippets from magazines of those million dollar luxury homes that you see um just always had a passion for property i don't know what it is or why specifically but yeah it's really ingrained in me i use the term property nerd as a badge of honor um (laughs) certainly not a put down but it sounds like you've ousted yourself as a property nerd from an early age I think a property nerd is a good way to explain it. Yeah, I'm not ashamed of that. I think a lot if more you, people um, would like to be. Yeah, and I think uh, <laughs> if you're wanting help with property, then a property nerd is the person that you need. How did you get started in, in property and uh, what was your first investment? I got started in property um, because my my parents have been investing in property um, from an early age uh, when they first came here. Um, and that's really held them in good stead for the future, for their, for our future, for myself and my brother, um, and also for them, obviously. Um, and so that sort of started the fire as to, you know, what's going on here? Like, what's this property thing? Um, and ever since then, it's just grown and grown and grown on me. Um, and then about 10 years ago um, is when I first bought my, uh, my first investment property. Um, and there was an apartment in Western Sydney and... I've never looked back, to be honest. Like it's been, it's been a great investment, and um, still got it. It's, I've still got it. I've still got it, which is great. Um, and it's really, it's good capital growth, good cash flow. So can't really complain. Yeah. Do you remember what you paid for it? I paid two hundred ninety for it. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's about the price of a car park, even in Western Sydney. Yeah. So now, it's, yeah, <laughs> it's got some good growth on there. So. Um, and I've been able to utilize some of that to, you know, keep going. And um, yeah. 
Awesome. Well, I want to dig into the the secret sauce, of course, but just to give us a bit of a background, I did, a, of course, a rudimentary LinkedIn stalking, and I found that you're an engineer by trade, and um, that sort of piqued my interest because engineers are very interesting characters. <laughs> Was that what you wanted to be when you left school? Uh, guilty. I am an engineer by trade. I have a civil engineering degree. Um, <clears throat> is that what I wanted to be when I left school? I guess the short answer is... When I left, I probably didn't know what I wanted to be, um, but I knew that I was good at maths and I liked building and I liked science, specifically physics. And when you did the old, probably back then, the Yahoo search or a Google search, um, <laughs> engineering was, was probably the right fit. Um, and I'd say, yeah, that's, that's pretty much um, matches of sort of my skill set back then. One thing that I, I noticed with chatting to other business owners, talking about clients that are very sort of analytical, anal is maybe another way to describe them. Engineers are probably on the podium at least, if not number one. <laughs> is there something about that degree that sort of trains you to be so detailed oriented? I mean, I've had clients read disclaimers in our reports that I remember writing, you know, 10 years ago, but haven't read since. Uh, what's going on with engineers? We definitely are probably on the anal scale on the high end, um, but I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily the degree. I think it takes um, a particular kind of person to um, to do that sort of degree, that sort of work, because there's a lot of analytical work to be done, um, and it's very meticulous. It can be you know strenuous at times, but I think it's more of a of a mindset thing rather than a um, a training in the degree. Uh, we're just, I think we're just inquisitive characters. We just want to know why, why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? Why is something the way it is? And you can't help it, but I guess to find an answer to whatever question you have. And so that might be considered anal, but some people think that's good uh, due diligence. I, I mean, I'm, I'm fine with it. And we talked about sort of property nerds being good people to hire. I think if you're, if, you're, if you're nerding out in whatever your industry is, you're probably going to be very handy for clients. What, what is it about the, the engineering degree that helps you with property, do you think? I'm assuming that it does. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing your, your level of analysis and due diligence is, is going to be pretty solid. Yeah, I think that's definitely one... Um one good aspect of um, the skill set you, you gain from that degree, um, but probably the skill set that you lack um, studying that degree is the, um, the, the communication skills, the, um, in the interaction with people, how to study people. So when you are doing your due diligence, when you are talking to real estate agents and everybody else within the circle of real estate, you need to be able to understand who they are um, what they're about, their drivers and motivators, so you can get the best possible outcome for your clients. That sounds a bit more sort of like a, a soft sort of psychological skill than like a mathematical one. Are you able to sort of bridge the two? Oh, look, I think I definitely have. And the, the soft skill is definitely something that you learn over time. Um, some people are naturally gifted with that at an early age, but I think most of us, you know, we learn, we learn as you go. We learn on the job. When you start working in corporate, you understand how you need to talk to different different people with different personalities. And so understanding that and then having the, the technical skills as well, you need to be able to bridge the two so you can 
communicate um, what you want to communicate, you know? Yeah, there's there's obviously a lot of sort of human interaction and negotiation that's part of building a, a good po- pro- property portfolio and I guess buying under market. Let's let's talk about property l- lest we get some hate mail. Yeah. Um, when, when did you sort of first get bitten by that bug and can you run us through your portfolio because I know you've 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 got a lot of runs on the board personally with with what you've been able to achieve. Yeah, um so in terms of when I got bitten by the bug, it was about that 10 year, 10 year mark um, from, from today, 10 years ago. Um, like I said, I was working in, in engineering and um, I had bought my first property and all of a sudden capital growth hit. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. Um, I've just worked the whole year and I've made more money through property than I've made through my employment. Um, and I remember sitting there and I was actually reading, um, Michael Yardney's book, um, how to be a, I forget the name of it now, but, um, uh, how to be a millionaire, you know, through property and, um, it just, just struck a chord with me and I was like, this is it. Like, this is definitely it. And, and having seen that physically myself and as well as, um, like I said, my background with my parents, how it's helped them. It was a no-brainer. Like that, that was it. So, bought that first property, um, and then got some good capital growth. Educated myself in terms of how I can access that equity without cross-collateralizing and all that sort of stuff. Bought the next one. Same thing happened again. So, really, the buy-hold refinance strategy. Um, yep. Then I bought the next one um, using the same strategy. And at the moment, where um, where we're doing doing a development, so. Um, with it as a JV. So it's really helped me the whole way along um, to really help set up, not just yep. for me, but for my family. And you know, I was going to ask, is there any particular formula that you follow, but I guess you're purchasing something in a, in a growth area and redrawing the equity. Were you sort of saving deposit components along the way or was it more just in the redrawing on the back of the capital growth? It was a combination. So a lot of the a lot of the deposits were from the capital growth um, using that equity, um, but also just due diligence mm-hmm. with saving, um, and that helps as well. So you want to reduce your LVR. You don't want to go in sometimes too too highly leveraged. Um, I mean, it's great to have leverage, but I think sometimes you just got to mitigate your risk and just see what what best suits your specific risk risk profile. Um, but yeah, it's a combination of both equity and um, I guess sweat equity, which is the savings from from full time work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and give us a bit of an insight into this development JV. What what sort of project are, are we talking? Oh, look, it's just a project between um, some family members. We're doing a, a duplex development, um, and we, we picked it up, you know, uh, a couple of years ago, and um, it's in the middle of developing now. So, you know, when that's done, it's going to really help catapult our our um our portfolio so and that's great and i think really depending on how um depending on how driven you are to to create wealth development is definitely a great way but it obviously takes a lot of capital so being in a joint venture with other people is a great way to get your foot in the door to these um to 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 develop property and recycle the equity or sell whatever you're going to do to go again and go again and go again 
Yeah, beautiful. And of course, a joint venture is a great way to go to get that capital going and, and start on that development journey. Is that something that you think that you'll be pursuing sort of as part of your strategy going, going forward? Or I guess it depends on the results at the back end. Yeah, obviously, you've got to do your feasibility and see if it's going to work and get and the numbers add up. Um, but if, if everyone could do it in terms of the capital that they had, it's a great way to make a return in a short amount of time. Um, but there's obviously risk associated with it as well. So depending on your risk profile, you really um, should consider either buy and hold um, or looking for potentially positive cash flow property, depending on your strategy, really. Yeah. Yeah, I think development ups the risk uh, considerably from the buy and hold sort of thing. And it's something that I think people maybe get a little bit too anxious doing at the beginning of the journey. But um, if we are taking a bit of a, a step back, um, you 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 shared a great post that I wanted to, to talk to you about. That was comparing comparable property. So when you are looking at the buy and hold strategy, for example, and you, you're potentially looking to make an offer on something and you're comparing the properties around it, what sort of advice can you give us for that that? part of the due diligence don't just look at how many bedrooms how many bathrooms how many car spaces it has um, that's one aspect of it but the other aspects that you need to look at to compare them basically apples for apples are is it a double brick home is it a one story is it two story um, what's the land size the location of that property there are many things that go into the comparable um as comparing, sorry, comparing properties to each other. It's not just the number of bedrooms and bathrooms. Whilst that is a big component, and that's how a lot of real estate agents probably price their properties. Um, and you can get a quite a big jump in value if it has an extra uh, bedroom. But a specific location, you know, city or water views or um, or land size plays a big component in terms of what the what the value of the property is worth. Yeah, so I guess when you're sort of looking at the comparables, if you're using PriceFinder or RP data or whatever online tools that there are, it, it's a bit too simplic to, simplistic to just go, well, this is a three-bedroom that sold for X, this is a four-bedroom that sold for Y, this one I'm looking at is three, so it's probably going to be X. Do, do you typically sort of run a report like that and go and, and try and inspect those properties or do drive-bys? What's what's your normal process? Yeah, we go and inspect the properties. We get photos from agents, especially if they're interstate, um, feedback from local property managers. Um, what condition is that property kept in? It might be the exact same property next door, but the one next to it's been renovated and the one that you're looking at hasn't. You know, so is that a 50, is that a 100 grand difference in value? It just depends on the, the, the condition of the property as well. So we generally like to go in and have a look um, at, this, at the state of the property, its location, is it on a busy street, um, and really compare with the other recently sold within sort of the last three to six months around the area, if not ideally the street itself. Yeah, beautiful. And another post that I came across that I wanted to ask you about was about infrastructure. So I, I wanted to sort of pick your brain. Are, are we talking about infrastructures in the 
proximity to things like train stations or is it more about what's being built in the area that's going to drive obviously construction activity and jobs and that sort of thing? How does infrastructure fit into the to the health of the portfolio? Yeah, it's a combination of both. So for me, I love infrastructure. Infrastructure provides a great um, way for people to dictate, you know, potential growth areas. Um but it's not all about population growth. Um, that's only one aspect of it. But infrastructure itself is great because what that what that helps with is it allows people to get to to get access to transport. That transport allows them to get access to jobs, and if they can get access to jobs easier, they can you know generally speaking um, climb the corporate ladder and earn more money, and they can eventually have more money in the bank to spend on properties that they want to buy potentially back in their home area. Um, and then from the other aspect of infrastructure, you've got all the other infrastructure that's happening around the local area. So, you know, shops, um, building approvals, um, 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 just other local transport networks, linkages to, to main tra- transport hubs. Um, but it all for me really comes down to access to jobs um, because those jobs pay people and if you get paid, you can afford to live in specific areas. And if you can afford to live in specific areas and you love that area, you're willing to pay more and that helps to drive price prices higher. Yeah, well, that makes perfect sense. Do you think there's there's a, I guess it depends on the capital city, but is there a, a commute time that's sort of a, a, a ceiling to the distance that people want to go? Like, for example, in... In Sydney, are people to have happy to have a forty-minute train ride, or is it fifteen minutes by car in Brisbane? Are there any sort of rules around that access to the jobs or where people work? Yeah, look, it's different for every city. Um, Sydney's very particular. I think people, if they can get to work within the hour, they'd be happy. But if you talk to people down in Adelaide, for example, if they can't get somewhere within twenty minutes it's too far for them. So it's different for every city. And um, I think the main hubs like Sydney and Melbourne, if you can get to a job within, say, 45 minutes to an hour, people are are willing to accept that to live in these areas, to live in Sydney and Melbourne. Um, Brisbane's probably a little bit shorter. um, But I think people just, I guess they grow a tolerance to to the traffic, unfortunately. um, (laughs) Tolerance is a good word, I think. Yeah, honestly, like and like I said, if you go down to Adelaide within, if you're not there within twenty minutes, half an hour, forget about it. Yeah, and and by sheer coincidence, this podcast normally ranges between forty-five and sixty minutes. So we're we're here to serve you, commuters in <laughs> Sydney and Melbourne, Adelaide. You're probably no use to us. Um, maybe do it in two parts. But yeah, that, that's an interesting guide because you hear a lot of people talk about you know, we're purchasing you know, 15Ks from the CBD or within a certain amount of commute. But I guess, yeah, that tolerance for the travel, as you say, is something that people should be thinking about when they're investing. I, I want to sort of take a bit of a, I guess, a step back. Maybe we're going more into the soft things a little bit. But you wrote an article in Real Estate Conversation about creating a better life through property and sort of took aim at the old formula of going to school and trying hard, getting good grades and getting a degree and a good job and buying a house. And 
and and sort of trying to live comfortably that way. But it's it's not necessarily the the path to financial freedom. I think people are sort of turning that upside down. What what are you, what were you sort of getting at there, and what have you observed in the field? Yeah, look, um, that article I wrote. Um, look, some people are happy to to work their whole lives. Um, they love their job, or they're not too fussed. Um, they're willing to work till they're 60, 65, 70, whatever the age is going to be in, you know, 20 years' time. But um, for some people, that's not good enough. Um, they don't want to work in that sort of environment their whole life. So building a wealth base while you're young um, is a good way to secure your financial future. Um, and obviously, I've got a big bias for property. It's because it's what I know and love. Um, but in terms of what I've observed, you know, Superannuation now for males at the age of 60 has an average of $200,000 in terms of the payout. 200 grand is not a lot. Um, if you think wow. about your spending, that's going to be, no. um, that, that's the average, mind you, I should say. But um, if you're spending, say, anywhere between twenty-five dollars to $50,000 a year, you're only looking, if you get that payout in full, between four to eight years of of money coming in and then what you're going to be on the pension. So um, setting something up early so that you can build your wealth base and have more money on the back end that you can spread over time is a great way to live. You don't want to have that financial stress later on. Is there a way that we can sort of balance it? I mean, do you have advice for for people that are sort of going to uni or early on in their career that they can access the sort of compound benefits of getting involved in property without, uh, I guess, foregoing the avocado toast or whatever it is we're talking <laughs> yeah, about these avo. days? I love it. Smash yeah, avo. Yeah. Um, I think what people need to realise is that Sydney and Melbourne are not the only markets in Australia. And when they want to invest in property, they see, you know, an apartment in Sydney or, or Melbourne or Brisbane, you know, for like 700, 800,000 and think, oh my God, how am I going to afford a 20% deposit for, you know, for that amount of money? But you don't need to buy here in Sydney straight away. You, there are other markets that you can buy $250,000, uh, investments, um, assuming that they're going to be the right investment, of course, at the right time of the cycle, it can really help accelerate your your portfolio and, and, and get you up to a point where you can invest in these higher capital growth areas. Um, so if you want to do that, then it's obviously a balance between cash flow and, and, and uh, capital growth as well, you know. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you about the cash flow stuff and I guess the, the price points because... In, in, in looking at your social media posts, there's there's a lot of acquisitions where there is a positive cash flow focus. Is is that by virtue of the market that we're in, those deals are just more available or do you actively sort of target the cash flow for, for your investors? We don't actively target them um, for our investors. It really depends on what that investor needs at the time. Um, some people can't afford, you know, a shortfall of, $100 or $200 a week, even if there's a property that has really good capital growth potential, they just can't sustain to uh, keep that property in their portfolio because the shortfall is too high. So you can go for something, you know, a bit yeah. different and 
as the old adage says, capital growth gets you out of the game, but cash flow keeps you in. So you need you need both. You definitely need both. And different people have different strategies on how to support their portfolio, um, whether it's through rent. Some people like to do it through using the equity of the property to help fund the cash flow. It's be more of a debt on debt um, scenario, which some people like and some people don't like. But it all depends on yeah. every person's risk profile. And and if we're sort of talking about accumulating and, and managing the debt, you, you in that same article I referenced before, you sort of said there were three stages in building a portfolio. There was the accumulation and the consolidation and then the debt reduction side of things. Can you give us a bit of an overview on, on how to sort of walk through these stages of the portfolio building process? Yeah, certainly. So when you're young, you want to invest in property that's going to have some good capital growth. Um, the reason for that is you want to accelerate and, and collect as many good capital growth properties as you can early on so that you can access the equity and, and, and do the same thing and repeat. Then at some point, you're going to be capped. The bank isn't, is, going to, is going to stop giving you money because they look at your debt and they look at your income and say, nah, mate, you can't afford to buy another property. <laughs> so, which... We've had, a good, we've had a good run and the taps are now going off. Yeah, that's it. And even though that it's, it's done well, like bad luck, we're not going to give you any more money. So you need to start looking at um, consolidating your, your portfolio. And what that means is do you start looking at more positive cash flow properties? So when you do, when the banks are doing their assessments, they're going, oh, hang on, he wants to buy another property. That's great. But um, this one here isn't it's got great positive cash flow. So we're going to get paid back earlier. So it's more attractive for the banks. And I guess the way I'm looking at it for most people that want to live off the rental income of their investment properties is that if you can get some good capital growth properties early in your career, that's great. You'll get to build some great equity. And then later on, you can use that equity to buy some really good um, high yielding cash flow properties. And then at the end, when you decide to sell or do whatever you need to do to reduce your LVR, um, you can use that money to basically live off. Let's say we've been relatively successful in building our portfolio and we have, um, maybe you can alter this case study if it helps you, but say we've got 10 properties at a 60% LVR and they're all varying different types. Are there particular properties that should stay and should go? Like if we've got ones that are perennial capital growth performers or they're perennial cash flow performers, which ones should we sort of be targeting to, to, to sell down to, to reduce that debt, do you think? It depends on your strategy and depends, I think, on um, your age and what your goals are specifically as, as a person. Um, some people decide to move into um, some of their investment properties because that's always been the plan for them, you know? Um, yeah. And so it's, it's a bit of a roundabout answer, but it really does depend. Um, because if you've, got, if you've got 30 years, 40 years ahead of you and you've decided you, you're retiring at 40, well, then maybe um, the, the good capital growth properties are a good option because it's still going to be a good long-term option, whereas the cash flow, well, that's, well, that's a great option, um, you might not get the capital growth out of those properties that you 
that you want. And so it might, you might not be able to do some of the things that you wanted to do during your retirement. Yeah, look, I, I think that was a, a difficult question to, to sort of say generically, this is the answer. I think that makes perfect sense. That depends on where you're at in your, your portfolio and where you're at in your life. If you're 40, you're going to have different ideas to if you're 65. Yeah. Let's, um, let's, let's talk about um, some of the hot spotting for want of a better term. That's obviously yeah. a very popular part of the show. <laughs> um, you, you mentioned there are opportunities less than the median price of a two-bedroom unit in Sydney. Where, where are you looking to invest at the moment? Where, where are you active in at the moment, Peter? I, I, would, actually, I would actually say um, probably less than a studio in Sydney, but <laughs> right. you know. Yeah. Um, look, you when you when you're investing in property, you want to be able to ride the waves. You want to be able to pick properties that are in there, you know, at the bottom of the market, the start of the recovery, or any sort of rising market, so you can ride that wave, access that equity, and and go again. Um, some of those areas that have moved over the last sort of couple of months have been areas in in Adelaide. Um, Sydney itself has I've seen a big shift, specifically due to the reduction of interest rates um, and then the new year, 2020, at the end of last year, there was very low stock in the markets, in pockets. Um, but definitely Sydney, Adelaide is seeing, you know, some some good, I guess, another push um, to the peak of the market. Um, and then you've got other areas outside of the, the sort of main hubs. Um, you've also got areas in and around Brisbane, which are doing really well, or Melbourne. Um, but we've got areas around... Um, like regional areas of Victoria, which do which do really well, like your Ballarat and like your um, uh, like your Bendigo area, like they they do they do really really well in terms of regional markets. So um, where I'm looking is it's varying and it depends on everyone's budget, but um, the market the markets are moving again. I mean, it's just a simple look at you know you know Heron Todd White's uh, property clock, and there's a lot of properties that are a lot of areas, sorry, that are in that sort of start of recovery or rising market part of the clock. So, yeah. If we're unfamiliar with, say, the Adelaide, Brisbane or Ballarat, Bendigo markets, are there any bits of advice that you can give of how to sort of move into an area like that and pick the suburbs that are most likely to to be the best performers? Yeah, so it all depends on, I think, supply and demand. Um, there's some great tools out there that can help you assess what the demand to supply ratio are. And that's basically in terms of you know, what the vacancy rates are, um, online searches, um, what the typical value of the property is, is. Is there any potential for future development in that area that the supply is going to increase significantly? Um, but the like the DSR score is a really great way to, to get um, an idea of areas that can have some good capital growth. The other aspect is incomes. So is the household income greater than that regional area's uh, average income? And the reason I say that is because if you've got more disposable income, you're more willing to pay more for a property in your in your um, hometown. Um, is it true also that people with higher disposable income are more likely to sort of maintain and renovate and improve their properties? Does that weigh into it as well? It is. And you've got to look at um, the rental market in that area as well. So if a lot of, if there's a lot of, a very high percentage of renters in that area, then that's not going to happen a lot. But if people live there and they have a high disposable income, 
um, then they will. They'll, just, they'll decide to upgrade. They'll decide to do renovations, extend, whatever they want to do because that's their principal place of residence. That's where they want to live. They, they sort of take pride in that area, in their house. So, yeah. um, And that adds value. Yeah, awesome. And and when it comes to your clients, I'm interested in what the conversations are like. Are, are they fairly educated about property investing? Are they all chasing certain markets or growth or cash? What 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 is there anything that they have in common? Um, they all want to invest in property. That's a common that's a common theme. <laughs> that's um, a good that's a good start. Otherwise, maybe it's a wrong number. Yeah, exactly right. But they all have different. They all have different drivers and, and different levels of education. Some people know a lot, and it's fantastic to have that, those conversations with them. Um, they just don't have the time to, to, to deal with it, to, to go around and inspect all these properties and deal with agents and contracts, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, building pest inspections and all that kind of stuff. So, some people it's more of a convenience thing for them. Others um, require some education and you need to take them on the journey with you to explain what's happening why certain things a certain way um, and they tend to start to to love the process more and more if you take them with you. So there's, there's varying yeah. levels of education. Do people come to you often with the idea of they want to buy a certain type or in a certain area or do you normally see clients saying, look, we just want to grow our wealth and we're in your hands? A lot of people that I've spoken to recently have come to me and said, I want to buy X amount of bedroom in X area. So I'll ask, you know, why are you looking at that area? And we delve, deep, yeah. we delve deeper into the reasoning and then we find out that that's probably not the best area for them at this specific point in their investing journey. So um, I think a lot of people have this preconceived idea of what they want to invest in and where. Um, and some people are on the ball, which is great. Um, and some people, you know, they're a little, little bit left of centre. But um, at the end of the day, we got to do what's best for our clients, um, and that's find the best, you know, investment opportunity for them. I can just picture them coming to you saying, "I want to buy this area, four bedrooms," and you sort of saying, "Whoa, up! I'm, I'm an engineer, so we're going to need some more detail." <laughs> yeah. Or uh, my favourite one is, oh, "I've got this off the plan property." Uh, oh, no, ouch. No, no. Interesting. <laughs> Speaking of off the plan, uh, we've sort of, I guess this podcast tends to bash off the plan. Um, there's other podcasts like The Elephant in the Room that are probably on the same page. Uh, are there are there sort of opportunities in off the plan completely dead and buried or, or is there still opportunities to, to find good developments that are on the sort of boutique side? I mean, everyone sort of probably knows a story about someone that's done really well. I was chatting to an investor recently who will be uh, coming up on the podcast saying that they actually had uh, an off-the-plan purchase that took 18 months to construct and they had about 100 grand worth of equity before it had even finished. I mean, those those stories are very intoxicating, but is that is that well gone? Um, I don't think it's gone. I think it will always be around and I think it depends on the timing of each specific market. So if you're in a rising market and there hasn't been a lot of development, um, you know, leading up to that, to that specific market, then yeah, off the plan property is going to be attractive because there's going to be a lot more supply coming in later, but they they will be under construction, and in the meantime, yours is already built, and so you're going to gain equity straight away. But 
I guess as a general rule, the reason why off the plan isn't attractive to me initially is because a lot of the times you get um, project marketers who, I guess, give you a cash flow spreadsheet which says you're going to get X amount of depreciation back and it's going to be positively cash flowed and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. You know, for me personally, all that depreciation stuff is a is a um, is a bonus that shouldn't be the driving factor for um, purchasing an investment. Um, and if you're buying in a high-rise building, it's going to be a lot of supply, and yours probably won't be the only one around. So if you you know you're buying in a thirty-story building with you know four or five different um, apartments on each level, that's a lot of supply, and if there's you know, 10 of these high rises, 12 of these high rises going up, you're not going to get much demand for your property because they're all the same. Whereas you've got these boutique developments. I think, yeah, I think that's really solid advice. And Sorry, mate. Yeah, I was going to say, you've got these boutique developments that um, can provide some really good, um, some good investment opportunities because one, they're probably very different to the high rise buildings and they're in smaller pocket, smaller, more attractive pockets in areas where you want to invest in. Yeah, that I think that's great advice. And, and not just when you're selling a property does the size of the development make a difference, but when you're putting it up for rent as well, right? Like if there's 200 units in the development and you've had a tenant vacate and you're needing to find another one, chances are there's a, you know, a Saturday open for inspection and there's six other apartments for rent at the same time. That um, level of supply is going to push down the, the potential there. And I think with the developments, they're not they're not really designed for anything other than the developers to make money. Um, so that's something to be a bit skeptical of. And the depreciation is always going to be a big selling point for the big projects. And it's certainly true that the bigger it is, the more deductions there are. I certainly have people sort of calling me saying, what should I buy for the best deductions? And I said, okay. and I'll say things like, well, make sure it has a cinema and 18 gyms and a 40 store uh, story basement car park. But that doesn't mean it's the best investment, right? doesn't mean it's the best investment for you at that specific time for capital growth. And with a lot of supply, again, yeah, it can affect your cash flow because the, the demand for rent is, 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 a, is much lower because there's so much supply. Let's get the crystal ball out, if you wouldn't mind, Peter. For the, the property market in general over the next 12 months, and feel free to break it up into cities or LGAs or streets, if you're that engineering. Yeah. Um, what, what are you thinking for, for property for the next 12 months? Well, this coronavirus has really um, put a spanner in the works. Um, that think... was my next question. Yeah. How, what's the impact of that? And do you have any two-ply that you can lend me? Um, I don't have any two-ply. I've got three-ply. <laughs> but um, oh, wasn't, premium. <laughs> wasn't definitely wasn't one of the ones... Um, running into the shops to buy some toilet paper. I've still got the same packet I had probably about two weeks ago. Um, That's good. But this podcast is about property, not toilet paper. But I think um, in terms of the next 12 months, with the interest rates going lower again um, just recently, and I think they will start to go lower again, unfortunately, which is a good and a bad thing for the economy. Um, but it's going to see property prices increasing, um, I think, across the board. It's going to see those areas where they are a bit lower in terms of a base, like your Adelaide areas, where you can buy houses for 300000 400000 That's very attractive for investors. You've got areas like Brisbane, which has been the, you know, the poor cousin or sister 
of, of Sydney and Melbourne for a long time. I think people will start to see value in there. Um, but, you know, your, your Sydney's and Melbourne's in those, in those premium areas, they're always going to be in demand. And with lower interest rates, I don't really see it slowing down in the next 12 months. Are there any particular sort of shifts that you see in areas like that that are a little bit more blue chip that always tend to, to perform? Do you think we're going to see a big downsizer shift as we have some baby boomers sort of trying to exit? Or do you think we're going to see a big shift in intergenerational wealth that's going to help you know young people get into some of these properties that have median prices of you know one to two million bucks? I think you'll definitely see a lot of that intergenerational wealth happening, um, but also the downsizing is, is important as well. As as land is becoming you know more and more scarce, you start to see, I guess, more of these sort of terrace townhouse style homes that people are willing to to live in rather than having, you know, a six hundred square meter block with fifteen meter frontage. Um, they're willing to accept, you know, six meter wide, seven meter wide townhouse um, just to stay within the area because it's not a bad alternative um, you don't need to pay strata you don't need to do with other you know other people living within your your apartment block um, so it's a good alternative with the, for the downsizers and I think with that aging population that is becoming more and more attractive because as you know the older you get the less cleaning you want to do in the house and so you don't yeah. want a big house you just want something manageable I do see some elderly people really relish their hedge trimming in in, in my <laughs> suburb, but I, it it raises an interesting point. I mean, the, the housing affordability is is a topic that that comes up all the time. I think housing is probably as affordable as it's been for a while, but that's likely to to decrease. And as we increase the density in suburbs, that's that's obviously a potential to increase the supply. But do you think people are moving to these smaller places because that's the way that we want to? live these days we're over the sort of quarter acre block and the picket fence or is it really just a a price point as if you want to live close to amenities you really can't afford to have 800 square meters anymore i think people would love to have a freestanding home on 800 square meters you know four bedroom double garage all that sort of stuff but in the areas that most people want to live which has all these amenities the cafes the restaurants the vibe um, particularly like millennials these days, um, we want that lifestyle. We don't, we're sort of not willing to settle for um, a house out in the suburbs where there's not much happening because I think a lot of people feel like they're, I guess for lack of a better word, wasting their life. They want to they enjoy their life. So to compromise, they need to find something a bit, bit smaller in the area that they want to live in and... That, that's the compromise, really. If they wanted something a bit bigger, then they've got to move out further. But to live close to all the amenities, to enjoy everything you can that, that Sydney has to offer, I think downsizing and living in a smaller place, um, that's sort of the trend right now. Mm, yeah, and do you have any advice for, for millennials that aren't wanting to waste their life in in outer western Sydney and, and want to be able to commute on their fixies and do the smashed over? <laughs> and that sort of stuff can 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 we have our cake and eat it too i think waste of a life was probably uh, a wrong term to use <laughs> um, but look, there's 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 areas in western sydney that are fantastic and there's great communities out there um i think again it comes down to jobs there's a lot of jobs around Parramatta area 
uh, but particularly around the city and CBD in North Sydney. So um, people don't want to want to commute an hour, an hour and a half every day, um, one each way, by the way, um, to, to a job. They want to be, they want to have convenience. And so my advice, if you guys want to do that, is start investing as soon as possible. You know, the old adage is the best time to buy property was 10 years ago. The next best time is now. And yeah. 100% completely agree with that. Peter, if people wanting to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, they can look me up on, on Facebook. I'm on all the socials, Instagram. Um, otherwise, you can email me at peter at elite1.com.au um, and feel free to get in touch if you've got any questions. Easy. And just for for summing it up, if you can impart one piece of advice to property investors, what would that be? Leverage is a great friend, but it can be an enemy. And if you can start as early as possible, if you can start today, do it now. Technically, that's two, but <laughs> I'll allow it. One sentence. <laughs> one sentence still counts. Mate, I think that's fantastic advice and you've shared some great wisdom today. Thanks very much for your time. It's been a real pleasure. It's been a pleasure, Mike. Thank you very much. Cheers. Bye.